slide. Oh, there we go. This meeting will come to order. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Monday, November 13th, 2023 meeting of the Rules Committee of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. I'm Supervisor Matt Dorsey, chair of this committee. And I'm joined by Vice Chair Shimon Walton and committee member Asha Safai. Together, we would like to express our gratitude to our clerk today, Mr. Victor Young. Thanks also to the team at SFGov TV for facilitating and broadcasting today's meeting, in particular, our producer today, Jeanette Egenloff. Uh, Mr. Clerk, do you have any announcements? Yes, public comment will be taken on each item on this agenda. When your item of interest comes up and public comment is called, please line up to speak on the right. Alternatively, you may submit public comment in writing in either of the following ways. Email them to myself, the Rules Committee Clerk, at victor.young at sfgov.org. If you submit public comment via email, it will be forwarded to the supervisors and included as part of the file. You may also send your written comments via U.S. mail to our office at City Hall, 1 Dr. Carlton B. Goodlett Place, Room 244, San Francisco, California, 94102. Please make sure to silence all cell phones and electronic devices. Documents to be included as part of the file should be submitted to the clerk, myself. Items acted upon today are expected to appear on the Board of Supervisors agenda on November 28th unless otherwise stated. That completes my initial announcements. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. Um, before we get started in the interest of time, that we're gonna, we are gonna be limiting public, general public comment uh, on issues to one minute and then those people who are contending for spots to two minutes. Uh, Mr. Clerk, could you please call item number one? Yes, hearing to consider appointing three members terms ending November 30th, 2024 to the Ballot Simplification Committee. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. Uh, we have three nominees joining us today, or actually two are joining us, but three nominees for the Ballot Simplification Committee. Uh, for those unfamiliar with this bodies, it, it, its uh, powers and duties are enumerated in Section 610 of the Municipal Elections Code. They generally involve preparing a digest for each measure voted to, to be voted on in the city and county of San Francisco and assisting the Director of Elections to prepare additional materials for the voter information pamphlet. Uh, under that code section, seats one and two are nominated by either the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences, Northern California chapter, or the Northern California Broadcasters Association. In today's case, both are nominated by the former. Separately, um, seat number three reflects a nomination from the League of Women Voters. Um, to the nominees here, I ask that you, again, li li limit your remarks to a couple minutes and be available for Q&A, if any. Um, the nominee for seat one is uh, Christine Unruh. Uh, because of a miscommunication, I think uh, Ms. Unruh is unavailable to attend this morning's, but she has submitted a statement that I'm gonna read on her behalf. Um, I am a retired journalist and teacher. I worked for more than 20 years as an editor at the San Francisco Chronicle and as a freelance editor. Later, I became a teacher at a low-income schools in the city, teaching, writing, teaching and writing social studies uh, and helping students and parents maneuver through high school school applications processes. Um, I have previously served on the Ballot Simplification Committee with Ms. Packard as the chairwoman. I resigned from the BSC because I could no longer devote the time necessary to be a productive member of that committee. During my tenure on the committee, many acquaintances remarked to me how much they valued the concise language about ballot measures that was available on the voter handbook, uh, proving to me that the BSC is a very important part of our voting process. I look forward to serving on this committee again. 
So next, uh, let me invite up uh, Ms. Betty Packard, who has been renominated to seat number two. Ms. Packard, welcome to the Rules Committee. The floor is yours. Good morning. Well, uh, Supervisor Walton is my supervisor, and I have met you, Supervisor Dorsey, and I've met Supervisor Asaye in the past. So um, I have chaired this, I've been on this committee since 1997. I have chaired the committee since 2004, and I have at times regretted that, uh, but uh, always at the end, I am proud of what we have accomplished. And one of the things that I keep telling voters is that when you read at the bottom of our page, that's of our digest that says this is what will happen if you say yes, that's what will happen. And uh, I am very proud of the fact that in all these years, uh, we, when we have said this will happen, it has happened when passed. So um, it, sometimes it seems like a brutal task, but I guess all volunteerism is like that. So I am happy that Chris is coming back. She had to resign for uh, employment purposes, but now she's retired. I'm so thrilled that she's back. And uh, we have a brand new person from the League of Women Voters. So uh, we're looking forward to welcoming her to the fold. And uh, one of these days, the school board will find it within themselves to find a representative to this committee. But for now, this is the seventh year we have operated without a, a fifth member. So, but other than that, uh, I, I welcome your questions. Great. Uh, thank you, Ms. Packard. I'm seeing no one on the roster. Let's uh, invite up. You can t go ahead and take a seat. We may have questions or comments afterwards, but I'd like to um, invite up uh, Ruth Grace Wong, who has been nominated to seat three by the League of Women Voters. Is Ruth here? Yeah. Okay. Hi, Ruth. Hi. Sorry, I'm taking my kid to the doctor's appointment after. Uh, should I introduce myself? Yeah, yeah. Great. Hi, I'm Ruth. Uh, I'm the nominee for the League of Women Voters, currently serving on their board. Um, I uh, was excited about Ballot Simplification Committee. I've done some freelance writing in the past, mostly um, kind of technical about manufacturing, and I also edit Wikipedia as a hobby, and I figured this would be a similar kind of like collaborative, deliberative writing style. Um, and yeah, I'm happy to be here. Great. Okay. Thank you, Ms. Wong. I don't see anyone um, on the roster. Mr. Clerk, uh, when you can go ahead and take a seat. And Mr. Clerk, why don't we open this up to public comment? Yes, members of the public who wish to speak on this item should line up to speak now alongside by the windows. Each speaker will be allowed one minute. There will be a soft chime when you have 30 seconds left and a louder chime when, you ha when your time has expired. If you'd like to make public comment on this matter, please approach the podium. Can begin. I go. Should yes. I go? Okay. Uh, so my name is Danielle Dibler. Uh, I am a volunteer with Ruth at the League of Women Voters of San Francisco. I just came down today to express my support for her appointment to the Ballot Simplification Committee. I'm excited uh, for her enthusiasm and her dedication, uh, and we are really, really thrilled to have her uh, being appointed to that board. Thank you. Next speaker. There does not appear to be any other speakers. 
Thank you, Mr. Clerk, and public comment on this item is now closed. Supervisor Safai. Thank you, Chair. I just want to say thank you to, to Ruth and Ms. Packard. I've worked with Ms. Packard in the past. It's uh, for those that have gone through the process with the Ballot Simplification Committee, they take their job very seriously, and it's an important role in terms of getting a very clear message in front of the voters and an understanding of how to participate in direct democracy. So I just want to thank Ms. Packard for her commitment. It is a lot of work. It is a lot of time, effort, and energy, um, but it is extremely valuable. So it's very much appreciated. And thank you to Ruth. Looks like uh, she's a new mom. Um, and thank you for her interest and in wanting to be involved in this process. I think you'll find it very fulfilling. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Supervisor Safai, Vice Chair Walton. Thank you, Chair Dorsey. I just wanted to say ditto to Supervisor Safai's statements. Thank you, Vice Chair. And I, I just want to express my appreciation for everyone who is doing this important work. Um, to anyone who questions how much words matter, um, I would invite you to go to a meeting of the Ballot Simplification Committee. And I had the opportunity back in 2019 when I was actually working with, uh, before I was on the board, when I was working with uh, Supervisor, Vice Chair uh, Walton on a ballot measure. I, can, you know, I, I, can I mention we start on November 27th and all is invited to come and yeah. watch what we do? Sure. Um, so I, I just want to express my appreciation for your service and, and your, your service and your continued service. You know, I could see a lot of reasons why uh, having been through a couple of meetings that debating words and, you know, why somebody might want to give up on that, and I appreciate that you're not uh, giving up. So I'd like to make a motion to recommend Christine Unruh to seat one, Betty Packard to seat two, and Ruth Grace Wong to seat three, and to send those recommendations to the full board as a committee report. Mr. Clerk, can we have a roll call on that motion? Yes, on that motion, Vice Chair Walton. Aye. Walton, aye. Supervisor Safai. Safai, aye. Chair Dorsey. Aye. Dorsey, aye. The motion passes without objection. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. And now item one, three nominations to the Ballot Simplification Committee. Move to the full board of supervisors with a positive recommendation and as a committee report. Mr. Clerk, can we please call item two, items two and three together? Yes, item number two is a hearing to consider the proposed declaration of policy submitted by four or more supervisors to the voters for the March 5th, 2024 election entitled Declaration of Policy Urging the San Francisco Unified School District to Offer Algebra 1 to Students by the 8th Grade and Supporting the San Francisco Unified School District in its effort to develop its math curriculum for students at all grade levels. Item number three is a motion ordering submitted to the voters at an election to be held on March 5th, 2024, a declaration of policy urging the San Francisco Unified School District to offer Algebra 1 to students by the eighth grade and supporting the San Francisco Unified School District in its efforts to develop the math curriculum for students at all grade levels. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. Our colleague, Supervisor Joel Angardio, is the lead sponsor of these two items, and he is joining us this morning. I'd like to express our welcome to Supervisor Angardo to the Rules Committee. Supervisor, the floor is yours. Thank you. So I believe it's time to bring algebra back to middle school in San Francisco. That's why I'm introducing a ballot measure urging our public schools to let kids take algebra by the eighth grade. Now, I know that sounds strange, the vast majority of Americans take algebra in middle school. I took it in eighth grade. Most school districts in the Bay Area teach basic algebra in the eighth grade. 
Some even let seventh graders take it who show ability in math, but that's not what happens in San Francisco. We stopped offering eighth grade algebra because some kids weren't ready for it, and our solution was to make everyone wait until the ninth grade. Now, this was a well-intended uh, policy, uh, but a study by Stanford University showed that it didn't work. Um, it didn't help the kids who were behind in math, and all we really did the past decade is hold kids back who love math. And we lost many of these kids when their parents pulled them out of public school. So we need to end this experiment. We need to better prepare all students for algebra and not punish kids who can handle it earlier. Now, why does eighth grade algebra matter? Uh, every resident of San Francisco should care about this because well-run public schools are essential for a city to function and thrive. We have a tale of two school systems in San Francisco. Private schools are growing and public school enrollment is declining. And this reduces school district revenues, which are based on the number of enrolled students. And this makes it more difficult to provide what students and teachers need. A quarter of kids in San Francisco attend private school, and that's compared to only 9% uh, in California. And a policy against eighth grade algebra, it's a big factor when families decide to leave public schools. And families also leave San Francisco entirely. They leave for many reasons, cost of housing, quality of life, and schools, and we have the lowest percentage of children among major U.S. cities. So our future in San Francisco depends on keeping families here, and this starts with treating parents like partners and offering the courses and programs that will make parents want to choose public schools, especially the parents stretching themselves to pay for private tuition. Now, the Board of Supervisors, we don't have control over the school district. Our schools are governed by an independently elected school board. But every resident of San Francisco is our constituent, including parents and students, and their voices deserve to be heard. That's why I'm introducing, through the Board of Supervisors, this declaration of policy for the March 2024 ballot. It urges the school district to offer Algebra I to students by the eighth grade and to develop a math curriculum that prioritizes excellence for students at all grade levels. I want to thank the co-sponsors of this measure, Supervisor Safaye, Supervisor Dorsey, Melgar, and Stephanie. Thanks to the advocacy of many parents, uh, the school district has launched a committee tasked with bringing algebra back to eighth grade, and this is great. Love to see that. But as we know, there's no guarantee what this committee will determine. Many parents have seen how school district committees have gone off the rails, so to speak. So that's why this ballot measure is important. It gives parents and voters the chance to tell the school district that there's a mandate for algebra in the eighth grade. And I believe if a kid likes math, let's do everything we can do to encourage it. And so I'd appreciate it if this committee supports uh, sending this measure to the full board uh, with positive recommendation. Thank you. Thank you, Supervisor Engardio. Uh, Supervisor Safai. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Supervisor Engardio. I just want to add on a couple things from my own perspective. I'm very happy to be a part of this effort to bring algebra back to the middle schools. Um, about 25 years ago, I was a tutor uh, with an organization called the Algebra Project, and the whole focus of the Algebra Project was to go into our middle schools, uh, work with uh, children that had been historically tracked out of the proper college-level math track. It was a civil rights math literacy organization focusing predominantly on African-American and Latino students. Um, and it had wonderful success. And it was a program that I think uh, has been modeled around the country in many cities, Chicago, Jacksonville, 
um, Mississippi, uh, New York, Boston, Cambridge, um, and Florida, and, and actually here in San Francisco uh, for a time, it was in Martin Luther King Middle School. We need programs like that. We need more opportunities to expand uh, algebra for all students, and I think we can do it in very creative ways. A lot of that success begins um, even before eighth grade, and, and that was the work that we did. So um, I know that this is a, a, a non-binding uh, referendum, but I think it will say very loud and clear uh, that this is something that San Franciscans want. I'm glad to hear that the superintendent and the school board want to have and create a path, but I think this will put some additional uh, emphasis behind it and it will accelerate that process. Um, also, just wanna say for the record, um, even though we're doing this effort, uh, we here at the board and, and, and the city and county have done a tremendous amount of work in the past to support our school our public schools, we've done the property taxes to pay teachers, we've done the public education enrichment fund to do enrichment services, and then just last year we passed the student success fund, which will focus predominantly on schools uh, that have uh, lower scores when it comes to our achievement gap, um, and, and supporting those that don't have the resources to do math literacy, uh, English literacy, and whole school support. So I think this is just another step in the right direction to get the school district back on track. And I think we can do it in a collaborative and positive way. I think there's a lot of individuals that want to be involved in this conversation and want to help um, get the school district um, to offer. And as Joel said, there are, a lot of, there are a lot of families that leave for that decision. And those that don't, and this happens on a, on a, on a monthly basis, families with means go out and get tutors and they have their children uh, math work supplemented um, in seventh and eighth grade, and those without are left without that option. And, and that's not fair inherently. And so we want children to be able to, to be on the proper college level math track, to be able to take calculus while they're in high school, if they so choose to want to pursue a career in math and science and computer science, so they then go, can go and be competitive, um, particularly in the environment we're in at the ground zero for the technological revolution in the world. Thank you. Thank you, Supervisor Safai, and I just want to express my appreciation to Supervisor Engardia for his leadership on this. You know, we did have a, uh, a little kickoff event, and I mentioned that um, of all the things that I've done in my career, I don't think anything would be more surprising to my high school teachers than me being, a, you know, an advocate for algebra, because it wasn't something that I uh, did well with in high school, largely because I didn't, you know, I, I changed school systems uh, between grade school and high school, and I was one of those students who, you know, was really struggling to, to catch up. Um, so I feel this um, personally, and now as a district supervisor, I think especially representing Mission Bay and downtown San Francisco, um, where so many companies um, need to make sure that we are, are competitive um, and we have a workforce that is well prepared for STEM um, education. I think this is part and parcel of that. And I think it's appropriate that uh, as APEC you know, is, comes to San Francisco, what is on the ballot with this measure is San Francisco's global competitiveness. And we wanna make sure that we're continuing that. So I am uh, happy to be a co-sponsor and I wish you well in this. Seeing no one else on the roster, uh, Mr. Clerk, can we open this up to public comment? Yes, members of the public who wish to speak on this item should line up to speak now along the side of the room by the window. Each speaker will be allowed one minute. Uh, Chair Dorsey, are we allowing one minute? Uh, one minute. 
This will be a soft chime when you have 30 seconds left and a louder chime when your timer has expired. Okay, we have our first speaker. Hello, my name is Rex Ridgeway. I have a granddaughter in the junior at Lincoln High, and when she was in middle school, we realized she was not gonna be able to take Algebra one in the eighth grade. So we doubled up in the ninth grade, in the summer before her ninth grade year, and she's doubled up, um, and now um, is, she took a pre-calculus course at UC Berkeley last summer. So you can't tell me she's the only young lady of color of thousands that can do the math. They can. Last Wednesday at the education forum at Lincoln High, both the superintendent and the mayor both said publicly that they are for putting Algebra One back in the eighth grade. This resolution is to allow the citizens of San Francisco to speak. Let the citizens speak. And that way we all know this is the right thing to do. Thank you. Good morning, my name's Jeff Lucas. Um, Algebra one in middle school is a milestone. It's not the end point, it's not the goal, it's just a milestone. Math is also the foundation that supports science. My kids were fortunate that they were able to take a math class outside the district. This enabled both of my daughters to take college level physics and calculus while still in high school. They're both STEM majors despite the district's policy because they had the opportunity to take math outside the district. Algebra one in middle school is important for all kids. Not everyone has this opportunity. We should put algebra back in middle school. I'm preaching to the choir. Uh, thank you for your time. Good morning, I'm John Trisvenia, District 11 native and homeowner. Uh, we're not here to ask you to set education policy. That's for the folks a couple blocks away. But we are asking you to use your authority under the charter to elevate the voices of San Franciscans. Our, our democratic right to have something on the ballot using this process. We appreciate uh, the efforts of the supervisors to give San Franciscans a voice in this through, through the ballot measure. Uh, in one of my many steps away from San Francisco, I was president of the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund in Los Angeles, in East LA, Garfield High School. A math teacher, Jaime Escalante, was teaching calculus. People didn't trust that Latino kids could learn calculus. We can never have a policy that discourages Latino kids from, from reaching everywhere they can reach. And that means having algebra in the eighth grade and elevating the K through seven, pre-K to seven education. So San Franciscans want algebra. The suburban kids have it. We want it too. We appreciate your support for this ballot measure. Hi, my name is Ali Partovi, and besides working in the tech industry, I co-founded a nonprofit called Code.org, which is now used by tens of millions of children in public schools all over the world to learn computer science as early as kindergarten or first grade, including thousands of kids in San Francisco and Oakland public schools. And because computer science involves the same abstractions like variables and functions that advanced math uh, includes, I wanted to test to see whether you could teach algebra to younger children. So last year, I led a after-school club to teach first graders and kindergartners algebra. 
to my daughter Lola, who is six, and to her friends. And all of the group of kids that I taught it to were able to learn the basics of algebra at the age of kindergarten and first grade. And so I think we should be looking for how to teach algebra to younger kids, not limit it to older kids. And this is my daughter. Hello, my name is Lola Par Rose Partofi, and I'm six and three quarters. I'm in first grade, and I learned algebra when I was four. And it was simple and fun, and even though it was hard at first, I kept practicing, and it got easier. And I think that if it's easy for me, when I'm six, it can be easy for everyone. And uh, where is this page? Okay, there's a, there, the exact page. And I, and now I'm doing it on a note, okay, how do I get this to show? On a notepad, and it's easier. I mean, harder on a notepad but I'm going to keep practicing and it will get easier. And I think there should be no law of um, waiting until ninth grade, because that is a long time. Bye. Um, hello, supervisors. My name is Selena Chu. I'm a parent of two students in SFUSD. Um, I'm also a product of SFUSD. Um, in my years, um, we used to support the students coming from the low-income um, communities. I live in Chinatown, and I actually was fortunate to have opportunity to go to tutoring math tutoring program in the Mission District. So I took the bus, I went out there after school, and you know it was helpful. It, it helped me a lot. Our school also offers that. So why do we assume when we're poor and when we live in disadvantaged low-income community, we cannot learn? We should be learning at eighth grade algebra because everyone, when everyone's doing it, why are we delaying it in San Francisco, in a city with so many potentials? We should be supporting our families. They're leaving because our city, our school district is not hearing the needs of them. So let's let's Take listen to them. Elapsed. Let's respect their needs. Thank you. So my name is Autumn Loyan. I run SF Guardians, and we are here in support of algebra today. Um, the Board of Supervisors may not be in charge of the school district, but you do have the power to allow voters to speak, and it turns out that voters are in charge of our school district. So I'm very grateful to you for giving voters a chance to tell the school district exactly what kind of schools our kids deserve. They deserve to have every opportunity that their peers down the peninsula have. Down the peninsula, I have a child who took algebra in sixth grade. And I think every child in San Francisco should also have that opportunity. We also have a child um, who had to double up in algebra in, high, in advanced math in high school and really struggled during his junior year because the curriculum goes slow, slow, slow up through ninth grade and then expects you to run double time. 
And that's not fair. That's not good for the kids. It makes it much harder to learn that advanced math. You know, I was one of those kids who took algebra early, and it changed my life. My dad had severe depression, was out of work a lot. My mom was a school teacher. I didn't have connections. If I wanted a good job in life, I was going to have to work for it. And I worked Speaker very hard Speaker time has elapsed. Thank you. That time? All right. Thanks. Thank you. Good morning, supervisors. Appreciate all your service. Thank you for attention to this item. I encourage you all to unanimously support this proposition and move it forward to the full board of supervisors. My name is Lawrence Lee. I went to San Francisco Public Schools like many of your kids and grandkids, and it's a fantastic place. But at the same time, as, as Supervisor Ingardio said, we still don't trust them. People call me a watchdog. And you heard just earlier, there are there's districts' jobs to get people onto committees that they don't do. So we have to make sure that the public makes it clear that we have to push to get things to happen. I was a tutor too. I, I tutored Chinese American kids to, to, to learn how to do English. And this is something that so many people, brown people, Chinese American immigrants, really want to have happen. And they're afraid to speak up. And so I'm here to get you a sense that so many people want this to happen. So please, I encourage you to vote yes and push this forward. Thank you so much. Wow, I wish I had two minutes, but I'm gonna do this fast. <laughs> Hi, Supervisor, my name is Chanel Viz Valley, parent advocate. Thank you for addressing this ballot to help bring um, back eighth grade algebra. Um, my seventh grade is prepared to do this, and I'm I'm not a fan of politics um, in the school, but I'm a full believer that this is all hands on deck. Our seventh grader is not challenged doing common core math that he learned in elementary school. And he finishes work like for 15 minutes and he's like, he's good to go. Um, and um, I feel that he needs to do bring back eighth grade algebra along with all the parents that I um, talk to will like eighth grade algebra back because their kids are not challenged and they are they're into STEM like they were in the elementary school they were in and that we want to proceed to make sure that that they will do eighth grade algebra and not get bored like my son to be a lover of science so he can go forward when he comes in high school he'll be ready Speaker in order to left. change the world or change San Francisco and make it better thank you Hi, my name is Neely. It's my first time to speak in English in public, so I try my best. Yeah, um, the first, I please approve the uh, math, uh, the algebra literation for our supporting our kids. My, I'm a, a mom of three. My two older kids already, unluckily, they don't get the chance to, to learn algebra at, in the middle school. My oldest one now is, uh, she is in college now. She struggled in math. That's why she told me, mom, our system is failed. My second child is senior now. She take the compassion at high school, but when he tried to apply the calculus at college, they didn't, they didn't approve that. So it's kind of, he had to restart it. So, he, he cannot choose his major he likes. So I think uh, now the public school system is, is really, really not how our 
unrepresented uh, family. Yeah, thank you. Please approve the um, algebra legislation. Thank you. Hi, good morning. Uh, my name is Cindy. Uh,三,三万时工中将,呃,初,呃,初等,呃,代数延迟到九年级,让,啲学生呢,在报读大学,呃,数理科目,嗰时呢,缺乏竞争力,无法得到高科工作,呢个系好唔公平嘅。Th
UCs and other schools are still requiring this necessary course in order for in order for, um, for them to achieve their dreams. Um, and I hope um, today by coming out here that you will listen to the needs of families in San Francisco and restore eighth grade algebra. Um, Children like my daughter um, are not so good in um, math because her needs wasn't met by the school district. And I hope you are listening to us and restore eighth grade algebra in this city. Thank you. Hello, good morning, everyone. I, I, my name is Jimmy. I English uh, so, so I talk in uh, spell Cantonese. Uh, 因為如果你現在初等到時候學不到,你的九年級不會再回學不到,學不到之後影響以後的UC的入學,所以我請請各位你提入一番初等到時候。So I'm a parent of SFUSD student, and I'm here today to represent the many families in our city. Um, I am asking you to restore eighth grade algebra so our kids can be ready if they want to go to UC or other colleges. Of course, not everyone's going to go to, will want to go to college, but you have to have the right foundations so they can choose, they can have options in the future for, for any career that they choose. Math is essential, so I'm asking you here to restore eighth grade algebra. Thank you. Thank you. Are there any additional speakers on this matter? Hi, hello. My name is Louis. Uh,三房市問題,三房市的住房問題比較貴,因為要一般情況下是要啲engineer比較高收入的人群先可以住得起的。如果我哋入唔到啲好更好嘅住房問題,如果入得更高嘅學校需要有數學同埋嗰個S
we have many students who are ready. So let's bring it back and help the ones that are not ready to catch up. There are many ways to do it and not delaying the eighth grade algebra to later. Thank you. Third. It appears uh, there are no other speakers at, for public comment at this time. Great. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. And public comment on items two and three is now closed. And I will make a motion to file item two and to send item three to the full board as a committee report. Mr. Clerk, can we have a roll call on that motion? Yes, on that motion to uh, uh, hear and file number, item number two and to recommend item three as a committee report. Vice Chair Walton. Aye. Walton, aye. Supervisor Safai. Safai, aye. Chair Dorsey. Aye. Dorsey, aye. The motion passes without objection. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. On a unanimous vote then, item two is heard and filed, and item three is sent to the full board as a committee report. Thank you, Supervisor Engardio, and congratulations. <laughs> uh, Mr. Clerk. Um, okay. Usually. Okay. Okay. Uh, Mr. Clerk. Uh, can we call the next item? Yes, item number four is a hearing to consider the proposed initiative ordinance submitted by the mayor to the voters for the March 5th, 2024 election entitled Ordinance Amending the Business and Tax Regulation Code to Exempt from Real Property Transfer Tax and the First Transfer of Property that has been converted from non-residential to residential use and to authorize the Board of Supervisors to amend or repeal any aspect of the real property transfer tax, including adoption additional exemptions from, for, from the tax without voter approval to the extent constantly permitted and amending the planning code to allow square footage of office space that is converted to non-office use or demolished to be available for allocation to office development of at least 50,000 square feet in gross floor area and to allow the demolished office space that is pre-existing on a site to be deducted from the required allocation for an office development on the same site. Great, thank you, Mr. Clerk. Uh, this item, and together with our next uh, two that will follow, are sponsored by Mayor London Breed, and we are joined today by her policy director, Andres Powers, to speak on them. Mr. Powers, welcome to the Rules Committee. Um, the floor is yours. And, and thanks for having me. So again, Andres Power with the Mayor's Office. Uh, thank you, uh, Chair Dorsey and members of the committee. Uh, the first of these three measures uh, sponsored by the Mayor is really intended to support our continued downtown economic recovery and also support our housing needs in this city. Uh, Ann Tobier, the, the Director of Joint Development from the Office of Economic and Workforce Development, will walk us through the de details of this measure. Thank you. Thank you. Could I have the, um, the slide deck up? Good morning, Chair Dorsey, members of the committee. Thank you for your time this morning. Anne Topier, Office of Economic and Workforce Development. I'm here to provide an overview of the proposed ballot measure to waive transfer tax on office to housing conversions and to answer questions about the, the measure. This measure was conceived as part of the mayor's recovery roadmap 
to address the city's office vacancy rates and the impact that the pandemic has had on acutely and abruptly emptying out a portion of our community's, our commercial space, particularly in our downtown. The mayor's office and the board have collectively acknowledged that while this dramatic shift in vacancy has been disruptive to our economic engine, there is an opportunity to expand and diversify our downtown by adaptively reusing potentially obsolete office stock as housing. Earlier this year, the mayor and the board approved and enacted legislation to remove zoning barriers in order to expand flexibility to accommodate the widest range of uses, removing constraints to these possible conversion opportunities. Over the summer, OEWD, in partnership with the planning department, also issued a request for information to solicit feedback and learn as much as possible about what other regulatory or fiscal challenges remain as obstacles to converting office to housing. These responses provided detailed information on actual buildings being considered by owners for conversion. There was nearly unanimous consensus from responders that the transfer tax burden was a key financial impediment to advancing these adaptive reuse proposals. There are other fiscal challenges as well that also merit further analysis and consideration by policymakers, but none of which require voter, voter initiative in order to, to address. This transfer tax waiver is designed to incentivize early adoption of the program by requiring an approval application to planning by January 1st, 2030, and the advancement to construction permits within three years of application. The converted properties would then have time to stabilize, and the waiver would apply to the initial sale only after the conversion to residential has been completed and with a sunset date of 2054. There are additional good governance cleanup components in the measure that allow the Board of Supervisors the authority to expand or amend the measure by ordinance in the future, which aligns with the way other tax measures are structured in San Francisco. The measure also facilitates adjustments to the city's office allocation program by adding demolished and converted office square footage back into the annual office allocation and also permits existing office stock to demolish and replace an equivalent amount without securing a new allocation. These adjustments are intended to maximize flexibility in our downtown and also ease the path for seismic updates to buildings when a retrofit is not financially or technically feasible. While most of our office space will and should remain office space to serve and expand our business community and continue to drive our economic engine, the intention here is to diversify our downtown by providing a variety of options and users who will help support a 24-7 safe and dynamic neighborhood. Thank you, and I'm happy to answer your questions. Great, thank you, Ann Topier. Um, we are joined by our colleague, Supervisor Dean Preston. Supervisor Preston, welcome to the Rules Committee. The floor is yours. Thank you, Chair Dorsey and uh, committee members. Um, and just wanted to make some comments on this measure. And let me just start with expressing uh, my profound disappointment that neither the mayor's office nor economic of workforce development nor anyone in the administration bothered uh, to contact us or work with us at all around what might be appropriate exemptions to the transfer tax. Um, let me give a little context for this measure and also uplift a part that was addressed uh, in passing, but it's probably the biggest part uh, of this measure. Um, so for context, Prop I passed with 58% of the vote in 2020. 
And that was despite a $5 million campaign against it by billionaire real estate interests. The measure, colleagues, as you know, has already raised uh, approximately $300 million for the city. Um, and despite a unanimous resolution from the Board of Supervisors urging the mayor to use the funds for affordable housing, the mayor's fought every effort to do so. The city's housing element recognizes this as a source of affordable housing funds. Now, to date, this board has successfully allocated significant resources from Prop I to fund critical housing needs. We've set aside $42 million in Prop I funds for rent relief, keeping thousands of people in their homes, and making San Francisco the city with the lowest rate of pandemic-era uh, evictions in California. We have allocated uh, $64 million of Prop I revenue to housing preservation, helping to keep long-term tenants in their homes by converting their buildings to permanently affordable housing. And Prop I revenue was the premise for a groundbreaking $112 million certificate of uh, participation long-term debt deal uh, in the 2022 uh, budget, which included the first uh, ever dedicated funding source for site acquisitions and land banking, which allowed the city to buy five sites across the city, accounting for hundreds of new affordable homes. Rather than work with our office, or uh, for that matter with any stakeholders, including labor, affordable housing groups, or supervisors, uh, to discuss any concerns or proposed amendments uh, to Prop I, uh, the mayor's office introduced what can only be described as a reckless ballot measure that threatens to gut uh, Prop I revenue. I want to be clear, though, the poorly drafted measure that is before us uh, goes and will be before the voters goes far beyond um, reversing some of the Prop I revenue, giving a 100% exemption not just from Prop I, but from the entire transfer tax. Um, created by multiple ballot measures in San Francisco. Uh, the result is an absurd situation where a homeowner selling their family home will pay a higher tax rate than a multi-million dollar real estate company selling a downtown office building for conversion from offices to luxury condominiums. For example, were this measure to pass, a homeowner selling a $1.5 million home would pay a tax of $11,250. But a seller like Presidio Bay Ventures, which just sold a downtown office building at 60 Spear Street for $41 million, would pay a whopping total of $0. Instead of what's currently required under existing law, which would be a payment on that sale of a transfer tax of $2.46 million if they were converting the property. Uh, from office to luxury condos. Perhaps even more importantly, while this measure purports to be about office to residential conversions, it's actually a Trojan, Trojan horse whose real purpose has little to do with those conversions and everything to do with overturning the transfer tax more comprehensively. The most impactful and damaging and dangerous part of the, of the initiative and the real purpose of the measure is the part that hands to politicians the unlimited power to reduce, amend, or eliminate the entire transfer tax by a simple majority vote without returning to the voters 
This part of the law authorizing the legislative body to eliminate the transfer tax by simple majority is not even mentioned in the mayor's extensive three-page announcement of the measure. I think it is telling that that was not even addressed. And similarly, in today's presentation, it's buried in the final slide of a, a presentation that is otherwise about office uh, to residential conversion. So make no mistake about it, this measure is step one of a two-step plan to eliminate the transfer tax in San Francisco and give an annual $100 to $200 million subsidy to the richest billionaires and real estate investors. Finally, I want to emphasize my office remains open to working with stakeholders and city leaders on reasonable amendments to the transfer tax. And in fact, uh, such discussions have occurred and continue to, to occur. Uh, and there is, in fact, uh, already legislation um, at the board for a narrow uh, exemption around uh, affordable housing projects. Um, unfortunately, the mayor chose to place this reckless measure on the ballot without consulting stakeholders or anyone. It's very unfortunate, but I appreciate very much, Chair Dorsey, the opportunity uh, to provide these comments today. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Supervisor Preston. Vice Chair Walton. Thank you, Chair Dorsey, and I'm just going to be a little brief here, but definitely agree with a lot of statements of my colleagues, Supervisor Preston. Um, but I, I will even say this as a member of the Board of Supervisors, that we should not be able to overturn the will of the voters. And I think that this being in this proposed initiative is definitely uh, something that makes it extremely impossible to support. And giving up hundreds of millions of dollars when we're facing a deficit is not something that I deem feasible for this Board of Supervisors. If it was just about waiving taxes to convert to commercial properties, the language could be specific to that, and then we could be having a more serious conversation about this measure. Uh, but I, I, I do want to read specifically what it says, because I want the voters to understand what, what this says. Uh, section 1119 amendment of article. And I want to make sure the voters understand what, what is in this initiative ordinance. It says, the Board of Supervisors may amend or repeal this Article 12C by ordinance without a vote of the people. It says, without a vote of the people, except as limited by the California Constitution. So I want the people to understand that what is being proposed here is to take power out of your hands when it comes to assurances around transfer of property taxes, which have yielded over $100 million for the city and county of San Francisco during this deficit time without a vote of the people. I want to be clear about what language is in this ordinance. Thank you, Chair Dorsey. Thank you, Vice Chair Walton. Supervisor Sapai. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I just had a couple questions for, I guess, uh, either the mayor's office or, or Ann, whoever would like to answer the questions on the, on this, ordinance. So the thing, the thing that I that I just had some questions about. The controller's office talked about the loss in revenue. I mean, because I, listen, I don't think anyone disagrees we need to spur uh, the, the 
filling of, I mean, I think it's over 34 million. I mean, you say 30, getting different reports on a daily basis. So it's no question that it's millions and millions of square feet of empty office space. And I think there was a strong support for office to residential conversion. So, but the thing that I wanted to zero in on is, is the projected loss of revenue potentially. And I know that there's an argument if you, in, if you encourage investment that that's going to then generate some revenue. But in this instance, uh, the, the decision was made to, to eliminate it completely. And then, and then in, in, on top of that, it's compounded by the loss of potential business tax revenue because you've converted from office to residential. So the controller says it could be greater due to business tax losses. It could range anywhere between 30 to $150 million over the 30-year pe period. So what's the, what's the design or what's the thought about replacing that loss in revenue as we head into a recession? Was there conversations around that? Thank you, Supervisor Safai. I, I think what you just hit on is, is exactly right. So there's a couple things that, I, that should be clear. We are capping this program at 5 million square feet right. of office space. Mm -hmm. We currently have over 30 million square feet of vacancy. We think that there is a narrow band of office vacancy that will probably not regenerate as office in the future. And what we want to do is maximize the opportunity to convert that obsolete office space into housing. And I think that it's, it's certainly been a robust conversation over the past few years. Um, it was an abrupt disruption to our downtown. Uh, we don't know for sure whether uh, the office space that is vacant, there's, you know, some of these buildings are 78% vacant, 100% vacant. Those are the spaces that we are hoping will be able to take advantage of this measure uh, and convert to housing and in the future generate property taxes. Um, the, and I, and I, the, the 30 to 150 million was over the entire horizon of 30 right. years right. if all 5 million square feet were to convert. Right. No, I understand that. But then they also say it's it can be compounded by the loss in business tax revenue um, and then the cost of upgraded office space that occurs when people leave. You know, so there's a lot of opportunity. I just wonder what conversation was there around replacing the loss in, in revenue that, that's projected by this? Again, I think that there's a little bit of, the, even the controller's report is uncertain about whether there will be a loss of revenue. It simply says there could be if there is no, no, nothing to backfill that, that loss of revenue of those 5 million square feet. Um, what I will also remind you, if we are able to achieve 5 million square feet of conversion, it means we'll be adding at least 5,000 new households to our downtown, which will also help support small businesses, restaurants, nightlife, and again, create that kind of 24-7 dynamic neighborhood that we see uh, in the city and other neighborhoods that have not had this, the impact that our downtown has. And, and then, and then I, I guess just to add on to that, what was the decision around going completely eliminating versus going back to what it was that is, at 3%? <laughs> It's, it's based on just the sheer lack of feasibility. The cost of these conversions is expensive. Mm -hmm. Some of these conversions require seismic upgrades. Um, and again, the, the, the only eligible office spaces are those that will have been converted. So just oh, selling an office space course. does not eliminate your transfer tax obligation. It is only after you have successfully converted that office space to housing that you will be eligible 
for the transfer tax waiver in the future. Thank you. Thank you, Supervisor Safai. Um, I have a question because I think you might have answered it just in part, but I was curious about, I think you said up to 5,000 units. Ballpark, in terms of what kind of progress this may help us make toward our arena targets in the current housing element cycle, would you, what, what is the expectation of how much progress this will be able to make? We don't, I mean, this is not a measure that is really going to significantly change our housing needs. It is part of a solution that, need, that addresses our housing needs. If we could get 5,000 units uh, built in our downtown by 2032, that would be fantastic. And I think, again, we're, we're hoping that there'll be early adoption of this program. Uh, it's set up similar to, the, similar to the way we set up the TAC to try and incentivize people to move forward more quickly uh, and to move directly to construction documents once they've pulled the permit. But again, they will not be assessed and eligible until after they've converted. So it's not a solution to our housing per se, it's, it's diversifying our downtown economy. To, to that point, one of the things, this comes up often, as you might imagine, in District 6, I think there are some neighborhoods that would like to see office to residential conversion simply because it would be more mixed use, more use of the neighborhood, more vibrant downtown um, communities. Can, I've heard different things when I have talked to people about this, about how the feasibility of it, but the, I've also heard um, New York as an example where there was some, there was some efforts around... Um, you know, adaptive reuse, office to residential conversions, and how that is. Do you have any perspective on other cities or, or even elsewhere in San Francisco where we've had success with this approach? So, I mean, it's hard to compare our tax structure to other cities and states. We just do not, I mean, other cities and states do not have Prop 13, okay. uh, which constrains our ability to, uh, to reduce our, our property taxes unless you know, with the state constitutional amendment. And so it, it's, it's a little bit apples to oranges when we try to compare to other cities. There are certainly examples around the country that um, we think are promising and show a creativity in how to incentivize uh, the conversion uh, of obsolete office to housing. I think New York certainly had a significant hollowing out after 2001, and they put in a lot of, uh, of tax increment to try to help stimulate the, the conversion of their downtown as well. And they have successfully, I believe, created about 80,000 units of housing in eight, over 8 million square feet of conversion. Interesting. Okay. Great. Thanks Thank so much. Okay. Seeing no one else on the roster with uh, questions, uh, Mr. Clerk, can we open this up to public comment? Yes. Members of the public who wish to speak on this item should line to speak at this time. Each member will be allowed one minute. Those, there will be a soft chime when you have 30 seconds left and a louder chime when your time has expired. Uh, please. Good morning, Chair Dorsey, committee members. My name is Lamar Heistek, president of Asian Inc. We're located at 1167 Mission Street in San Francisco. Uh, we appreciate the opportunity to talk about the importance of economic recovery that includes our local business enterprises, the LBE program, is key to the recovery as has been identified in the report that was commissioned by the city administrator. We would encourage sponsors, co-sponsors, as this measure uh, seeks uh, public approval, to consider that uh, including the participation of local business enterprises in design, architectural, construction can be an incentive that uh, can be included when allocating uh, a waiver of transfer tax. 
Um, so we, we see that local business enterprises can be a pathway for those seeking uh, favorable uh, circumstances to include our community in economic recovery in the downtown. We urge you to include local business enterprises in this proposal. Thank you. Thank you. Are there any additional speakers for public comment on this matter? There are no additional speakers. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. Uh, public comment on item number four is now closed. Do we have any further comments? Seeing no one on the roster, um, I will make a motion to consider this item heard and filed. Mr. Clerk, can we have a roll call on that motion? Yes, on that motion. Vice Chair Walton. Just for the city attorney, all we're doing here is saying that this hearing is heard and filed, right? This in no way Deputy says city we attorney support. Ann Pearson, that's right. All you're doing is saying that the hearing has been heard and filed. You're not taking a position on the underlying matter. Aye. Uh, Walton, aye. Supervisor Safai. Aye. Safai, aye. Chair Dorsey. Aye. Dorsey, aye. The motion passes. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. On a unanimous vote then, item number four, hearing initiative ordinance, <coughs> business and tax regulations planning code, transfer tax exemption, uh, is heard and filed. Mr. Clerk, can we please call item number five? Item number five is hearing to consider the proposed initiative ordinance submitted by the mayor to the voters for the March 5th, 2024 election entitled ordinance amending the administrative code to require a standardized community engagement process before the police commission changes policies or procedures regarding police department operations, require the commission and department to consider administrative burdens on staff before changing such policies or procedures and to streamline reporting and record-keeping procedures, modify the department's use of force and vehicle pursuit policy, and establish a technology policy to allow officers to use body-worn cameras and drones under certain circumstances, limit new restrictions on the department's use of technology, and unless approved by the Board of Supervisors, streamline the process for the department to install community safety cameras and permit the department to use surveillance technology for at least one year before the corresponding surveillance technology policy may be disapproved by the Board of Supervisors. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. And uh, Mr. Powers is again representing Mayor Breed. Mr. Powers, the floor is yours. And good morning again, uh, Chair Dorsey, members of the committee. Um, I'm gonna go through a quick overview of the, of the ballot measure, and then we have the Chief of Police here uh, as well, uh, who uh, were, uh, can answer, help answer questions. If I could have the, uh, the slide deck, please. So um, this measure really builds off of the work. First of all, I wanna thank um, the, the partnership of, uh, of uh, Supervisors uh, Dorsey, Supervisor Angardio, Supervisor Stephanie, Supervisor Mandelman in this measure. Uh, this measure really builds off of the work that we've all been doing uh, to really shore up our police department's ability uh, to deliver better public safety uh, services to San Franciscans. As we all know, we're down hundreds of officers, but we are working uh, together to turn the tide. Uh, we've advanced uh, you know, funding for new police academies. Participation in these academies is the highest that it's been in years. We've negotiated new MOU provisions to increase starting salaries uh, to be the highest of, large, of, a large city, uh, of the large cities in, in the Bay Area. Uh, and, and we are also providing retention bonuses. Uh, and, and as a result of that, retirements uh, and lateral transfers are down 30%. So, so we are doing a lot of work to, to shore up uh, and increase the number of, of officers uh, in our, in our uh, uh, police force. 
this measure complements that work to really make sure that our, um, our officers are using their time in the best possible way, which in our opinion is, is being out in the street, working in communities, uh, and supporting public safety. Um, so at the end of the day, the measure is, is really about taking our officers from out of behind, being from behind desks uh, and out on the street and giving them the tools that they need to be able to, to provide public safety in the 21st century. So this measure has uh, three sections to it. Uh, the first section really is about standardizing uh, our community engagement process. So right now, um, the, the police commission, uh, when they move forward a new, uh, a new effort to amend a uh, department general order, which is the, the instrument that the commission uses to uh, enact uh, and define policies that govern how uh, police officers and the department function, that, that public process can, can really vary in terms of the, who it is that's at the table, uh, what, what uh, uh, points of view are considered, et cetera. So this, this measure really, this provision of the measure is really, in our opinion, about uh, instilling good government and about making sure that the policies that affect every constituency in, in, in the city, that those people are given the opportunity to sit at the table and provide, provide their feedback. So, so this, the, the measure would require, a, for, for large uh, policy changes, would require that the commission uh, hold hearings uh, and public uh, engagement uh, efforts uh, around the city. Um, really, and it specifies um, that when we're having these conversations that we need to hear from all stakeholders, and the measure goes through a series of, of these examples, you know, small business owners, residents, uh, and the like. Um, it requires that as part of the process of considering uh, public engagement and public feedback that there's a neutral facilitator to help really make sure that the public feels comfortable uh, providing their feedback. Um, and it also uh, specifies that, that there's a process uh, where the commission and the police chief can forego uh, the more for, for minor changes to policy uh, that the commission and the chief can work together and agree to uh, forego that public engagement process that extra public engagement process outside of the public commission hearings um, in order to, to move forward uh, minor uh, pro forma uh, changes to policy. Um, the, the second section of this, of this measure really is about um, improving the efficiency of the officers that we have. So, so right now in a similar way that the Board of Supervisors gets a BLA report when a new policy is being considered that speaks to the budgetary impacts, other impacts that the measure might have, the, the police commission doesn't have that analog. And so what we, um, what we are requiring is that as part of uh, the, uh, the consideration of new policies, that there be an analysis that's embedded into the public record that speaks to uh, the amount of time that this would require an officer to be off the street to comply with any requirements that come with that new policy. It sets that, in, in keeping with that, it sets that, the, that, that our goal is that no more than 20% of, of an officer's active duty should be behind a desk, that 80% of their time should be out on the street providing direct public safety uh, to residents and visitors of San Francisco. Um, it also provides provisions that, um, that authorize using technology in the city of technology encourages, it, uh, encourages, allows and encourages our, our, our officers to use technology uh, to, um, to, to, to do reporting. Uh, so, uh, so in certain circumstances, um, it allows for, um, so long as the incident is captured on body-worn camera and that there's, there's sufficient evidence captured on the body-worn camera, that that 
visual documentation uh, is sufficient to, to meet the reporting requirements. Um, it also replaces, right now, there is effectively a, bl a, blanket, a blanket ban on the pursuit of, um, of, of uh, in, by, by vehicle. Um, and so this replaces that blanket ban with language that says that the, that the officers, after deeming it safe to do so, which is a key operative provision, that after deeming it safe to do so, they can pursue uh, individuals uh, for violence, so not just any misdemeanor, but for violent misdemeanors uh, and felonies. And then it also provides a provision that sort of um, provides for an override of any future blanket prohibitions on technology. We really want to make sure that the officers and the department have the tools that they need today and in the future uh, to, to be as efficient as they can be. The third uh, section, and this is the last section of the measure, um, uh, provides for some explicit authorizations for certain things. So, so the first is it allows uh, the department, after going through a public noticing and public process, uh, to install public safety cameras in the right-of-way. So this is similar to CCTV that you see in, in, in most places, uh, uh, not just in the United States, but around the world. Um, so this gives the department the explicit authority uh, to install those CCTVs or those public safety cameras, uh, obviously with uh, the, the same level of, uh, of First Amendment protections and data retention protections that have been consistent in the 19B policies that have been moving through this Board of Supervisors. Um, the, um, the, uh, it provides some specifications about how the, you know, who has access to this information and how um, that, uh, you know, what the process is to get that information, which again is consistent with policies that have recently gone through this Board of Supervisors. Um, it, there's annual reporting uh, to really make sure that uh, that that everyone uh, is aware and is, is uh, uh, and that, that there is oversight over over that uh, uh, implementation. Um, it also provides for right now um, in in there's a, a provision in the Administrative Code Chapter 19B that requires the police department to proact and other departments, but in this case the police department to proactively get authorization from the Board of Supervisors before they implement any new technology, any new surveillance technology. This measure uh, keeps that, that requirement, but, but authorizes the department to have a one-year pilot period to experiment, to work through new technologies, to see how they work. So when the conversation happens again at the Board of Supervisors at the end of that one-year period, it's actually informed by data and, and real practice, as opposed to conjecture and and, and, and sort of, uh, and sort of, uh, and, and unknowns. So again, really, in, in summary, the, the goal of this measure is to um, obviously improve public safety here in San Francisco. We really want to mean, maximize our, our officers' time on the street. So really, we want them to be patrolling and not behind a desk. Um, we want to provide tools to the, uh, to the department uh, to, uh, to sort of better do their jobs. We want to remove some of the unnecessary and duplicative reporting requirements that exist uh, through a variety of our existing uh, policies, um, and then also give them the opportunity to really sort of uh, uh, try and use new technologies uh, in, in their work. So with that, that's the summary of the measure, and um, the chief is here, uh, as am I, to answer any questions. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Mr. Powers. Um, 
Supervisor Safai. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to talk to the chief about the pursuit policy because he and I have had this conversation over the last six months. So I really want to understand where we are on this and if his feelings are the same that they were when we've been talking over the last six months. Chief, you know the conversations we have. So, and um, I don't want to put words in your mouth. So I just would like to hear how the evolution has come and where your position is on the pursuit policy, because I know it's not an easy conversation. It's not an easy um, policy to work with, given the realities of being in the second most densely settled city in the United States and what that all entails. And believe me, I am, I am just as confounded by uh, some of the instances of pursuit and not. So can you please enlighten us and let us know what your position is on pursuit? Sure. So let me um, first say what I'm here to talk about are impacts, and I can explain and clarify current policies and impacts if this passes by voters, but I cannot take a position of for and against. You've been advised by council not to. I'm just kidding. <laughs> just you, joking. You know the drill. But <laughs> okay. I will, no, I will but answer it would, your it question. Would be, it would be good to know because, listen, I, I, with regard to pursuit, I understand that the policy was amended in 2017, correct? That was the last time it was uh, updated on the pursuit policy. No, not the pursuit policy. Oh, when was the last time it was amended? I believe it's 2013, I believe, or somewhere around there. Okay, all right, so 2013. It hasn't been changed since then? I don't believe so. Okay, so it was, it was 2013, and I know that there was a conversation around pursuit solely for instances in which it looks like the threat of life, like if there was a visible gun. I mean, that's the conversation that you and I have had. So tell me what, tell me what the changes is now. So this ordinance, if it is approved, will allow for pursuits on a broader set of circumstances. For instance, um, as was just mentioned by Mr. Power, misdemeanors that are associated with violence or any felony as it stands right now, the pursuit policy is only, it only allows for pursuit on a violent felony. Right. So and you, there and, is. And, and just to be clear, only when there's visibly, when there's visibly a, a visible gun. That's how well, you explained it to uh, me in the past. You know, no, no, a violent, a violent felony. So let's say there's an armed robbery mm -hmm. and the suspect is set to have a gun. Mm -hmm. That could be authorized for pursuit. Mm -hmm. uh, if there is a visible gun, let's say uh, the situation is a car break-in that goes bad and the person pulls a gun and that car break-in turns into basically a robbery because force of fear is used, that would be eligible for pursuit under the current policy. So the, the ordinance, uh, the impact of the ordinance would be, would broaden that to include all felonies and violent misdemeanors. Um, so the key here in terms of the impact of the department is the management of the pursuit and the balance. And um, the, the part that was mentioned about when safe to do so is really the key in terms of being able to manage a broader uh, scale of, of possibilities of pursuit. So the department would have to basically have strict controls on terms of pursuit management and weighing the gravity of the crime versus the risk to the public, which is 
what we sh should do anyway, but when you broaden that scale, that would be the impact. So why not, why not limit that in the policy just to focus on drones? Because I know that we've had conversations in the past um, about the concern and danger for innocent bystanders when you get into a pursuit. Why not just focus then on, on putting in drones in, in those instances? or using drones for those instances? Yes, so the concern for the public in general is always a factor in any pursuit. Uh, drones definitely would have an impact. The use of drones, in my opinion, would have an, a positive impact because it allows for, it would allow for the department to better manage the pursuit. It would allow for uh, capability that we do not have right now in terms of that aerial support. Oftentimes at the end of a pursuit, there's oftentimes a foot pursuit or a foot chase or perimeter. Uh, as it is, as it stands right now, we have uh, basically no ability to have any aerial support unless we are lucky enough to get a California Highway Patrol helicopter or a helicopter from an outside agency. So the impact of that, I believe, would be a positive. Um, and it's an enhancement. The drone is an enhancement. To, to answer your question, why not this or that? That's not what the ordinance calls for, but I do think the drone piece of this ordinance would have a positive impact. Has, has, for, the, for these policy changes overall, have, has the California Department of Justice weighed in on this proposal? Have you heard anything? And has I, there been any conversation between your department and California Department of Justice? Yeah, I believe that the mayor's office has had conversations with the California The, the reason I ask is because I know that we had the 272 recommendations, one of them had to do with analyzing racial bias, also use of force, and we haven't completed all of the 272 recommendations. Is, is this something that Department of Justice is comfortable with based on where we are? And you can answer that if it's not, if it's not you then, Chief, maybe it's someone from the mayor's office. Uh, uh, Supervisor Safai, uh, Andres Power of the Mayor's Office. Yes, we've had a, a number of conversations with the Department of Justice. Um, and, and remember that, and, and they have not expressed an opinion, uh, to be clear, one way or the other on, on the measure. Uh, we, uh, they had some, some thoughts and feedback uh, that they shared with us, and we incorporated uh, uh, some of that. Um, at the end of the day, the Department of Justice, as they explained to us, would, would weigh in after the police commission adopts the changes pursuant to the, to the ballot measure, and there is flexibility in the language of the ballot measure in terms of how ultimately the commission uh, uh, writes and adopts their updated policies, so obviously we would be working very closely with the Department of Justice at that point. So some of it would entail once the, once, once and if the ballot measure passes, the police commission would have some leeway in terms of writing the po actual policy? Yeah, ultimately, the commission would. Ha this doesn't rewrite the actual DGOs. The commission would have to rewrite the DGOs consistent with the with the direction uh, in the policy. And so, in that work, we would work with the commission and with the Department of Justice to incorporate feedback. Yes. Is that in every aspect of what's proposed, like vehicle pursuit, <coughs> use of force, body camera, all, all of that? In Yes, with the exception, so the, the exception in the measure that doesn't go through the police commission are the public safety cameras, so right. th that's not something that is, that is driven to the police commission in terms of DGOs. All of the other changes, use of technology, minimizing reporting, uh, use of force, um, uh, uh, pursuit, et cetera, that all has to go through the police commission, correct? Okay, I'll, I have more questions, but I see Supervisor Walton's on there, so I'm going to hand it over to him through the chair. Vice Chair Walton. 
Thank you, Chair Dorsey. Uh, Chief, just for clarity again, you said you can't take a position on the ballot measure? Not once it gets to this point, no. So there is a point where you can? Before it came to the board, could have weighed in, but um, once it gets to this point, I've been advised that I cannot take a position. I can explain impacts, I can explain, clarify policies and all that, but I cannot take a position for or against. But prior actions, you're allowed to take a position for or against, like being at the press conference. I uh, didn't take a position. Well, you said you can't do it during this process, but it would seem you being at the, the press conference is you definitely taking a position. Well, two things. That was before this came to the board, right. and I didn't take a position. I did not speak at that press conference. Um, you know, I, I just have to say that this is truly another right-wing attempt to address the civil rights of San Franciscans. Um, this undermines the police commission, which of course is in place to protect public safety as well. And it also takes away from the collaborative spirit of working together. And most certainly we cannot put ballot measures in front of the people that eliminate oversight. Um, you know, blanket approval of the use of technology is dangerous. And not, that's not just for the police department, that's for any city department, particularly a department with guns and weapons and a department that can make mistakes just like any other human. Um, and if, you know, we're, if we're talking about technology that is used to surveil people, residents, citizens of, of our communities, then most certainly there should be a process where any policy, any strategy is extremely vetted because it's gonna affect all of our, our, our people. And, I, and I'll, I'll just say this um, because I see this measure for what it is and, and what it's doing. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, going back to Supervisor Safai's question, if we are going to chase people in the streets of San Francisco, a dense city like San Francisco, over petty crimes which have and can lead to death, then we are, we are headed in a wrong direction. And I don't think anybody out there will want to be put in a situation where they lose a loved one, where they lose a child in a high-speed chase over a pair of pants or something that small. We have those pursuit policies in place to protect everyone for a reason, including, including police officers. But I, for one, don't want to get a phone call from a parent that their child was killed by any city department or city, any city entity over a misdemeanor when it could have been avoided. High-speed chases and dense cities have, do, and unfortunately will lead to death. So we need to be mindful and careful of policies in place for pursuit. And there is a reason why those policies are in place as we speak right now. Thank you. Thank you, Vice Chair Walton. I just have a question and I don't know if it's for the Chief or uh, Policy Director Powers, but I'm curious uh, when it comes to San Francisco's surveillance technology 
um, policies, particularly as they're in as much as they're restrictive. Um, are you aware of neighboring jurisdictions or jurisdictions in Northern California that have similar restrictions, or is San Francisco unique in that regard? There are uh, many jurisdictions that do not have the restrictions that San Francisco has that are around us. Most jurisdictions don't have those restrictions. Okay. Um, it's, uh, you know, in, in some of the work that we do here at the Rules Committee, um, I have seen people come in with policies that have, they've been working on for a long time. That, and I do understand the, the, uh, the importance of maybe streamlining some of that. And one piece of this that I really do appreciate is the ability for the police department to move quickly. Um, I recall that when in November of 2021, when there were um, a lot of organized retail theft activities here in San Francisco, it played out in Union Square. Um, but one thing that happened in, in these uh, episodes of organized retail theft were occurring all over the Bay Area. One thing I recall from that was that the cities of, I believe it was Palo Alto and uh, Walnut Creek, immediately res responded by investing in surveillance technology, cameras, license plate readers, and other. They were very nimble in, in responding to some of the um, organized retail theft activities. And that San Francisco, because of our, the way that our policy is written, um, were, was restricted on that. Do, do you, any, any thoughts on some of what played out in 2021? Uh, in 2021, there were restrictions that um, prevented us from being nimble. Of course, the board later changed the, some of the 19B requirements, so we do now have the ability to do more in terms of use of live surveillance in certain, certain instances. So uh, we did not have that at that time. Okay, great. Um, I think Supervisor Safai, some more questions, and then Vice Chair Walton. Yeah. <clears throat> I appreciate, uh, Chief, your straightforwardness. Um, I guess what I'm thinking is, I mean, these are really, I guess the only thing I would say is, these are really, really important conversations to have. It's hard to have them in a very condensed, you know, even if we spent an hour on this, it's very difficult to have this. And I know some of these things have been discussed over time. I mean, we've worked on those together, Chief. I mean, you, you chair the organized retail crime uh, working group with me, and we've spent a lot of time talking about pursuit. We spend a lot of time talking about cameras and drones and how they can be impactful. Um, I just, and, and it, it, it's good to hear from Mr. Powers that, that the voters then will come back to the commission to then promulgate the, um, the final uh, DGOs, as you state. Uh, so, I guess, I, I don't know if this was asked, but in terms of the body camera uh, work in lieu of written reports, um, what criteria <coughs> would be used in terms of limiting the written report and using the body camera in lieu of the written report so I can understand that a little bit better? Um, because oftentimes I note uh, from work that we've done in the past with you all, there's multiple perspectives and so just having uh, body camera uh, footage, not exactly sure how that works with sunshine requests. It works with 
internal investigations? Like, how does that all play itself out as proposed here? I believe the impact based on the, the concept that has been presented to this committee through this ordinance is efficiency. And with body-worn camera, you know, we can't supplant documentation. We can't supplant the need to do reports. The question becomes, how can we be more efficient and what impact would that have on the availability of officers' times to be in the field um, and still get the necessary documentation for crime reports, for use of forces, or whatever other administrative requirements that require that documentation. So it would still have to be developed. Uh, this policy is not prescriptive uh, as I read it in terms of knowing exactly what the impact would be. That would still have to be developed. What I would tell you, or will tell you, is um, the department is always looking for ways to be more efficient with our time. There's um, now the body-worn cameras are fully implemented in this department. There are technologies that we have at least made in inquiries about that would allow dictation services to be added to body-worn cameras. So those things are, are out there. Whether they are the right um, set of technologies, that remains to be seen. But, but the impact is to drive efficiency so we have more time in the field for our officers. Can I, oh, go ahead. And, and, I, would, and I would just add to that, thank you, thank you, Chief. So for certain uh, incidents, it specifies that they must continue to be in, continue to be in writing. So, so in the use of force policy, for example, it specifies that if, you know, if a, if a, a weapon was drawn uh, or someone was injured or complains of injury, um, uh, it, it specifies that that m must continue to be in writing that report. So it really sets the higher level caliber of incidents to, that must be uh, in writing. And for, for others, it says that they can be replaced. It doesn't say that they will be, but they can be replaced uh, with technological means. And that details of that and how exactly it gets sorted out and what the procedures are uh, would, get, would get hashed out at the police commission. Can, can I ask such a general question I, while you're still up there, Mr. Powers? Was there an attempt, and, and the reason I say this, because I know the chief back in 2018 when we were talking about tasers in, in the city and there was an attempt to go straight to the voters, the chief went on the record and said that he didn't believe that promulgating policies through voters when it came to uh, policing, operational policies by voter majority was the right way to go, that it should be the responsibility of the department working with the commission and you, Chief, to set that policy was a better practice. Was there an attempt um, to work with the police commission and the department to try to upgrade or work on these policies before taking them straight to the voters? Because I've heard from um, a few and they've said that they're, the, the particularly when it comes to the vehicle pursuit and some of the other, some of the other items that there is an ongoing conversation. They're in the process of reviewing those policies now. So was there an attempt to work with the commission and the, and the police chief and the department to do that through um, policy adjustments at the commission rather than taking it straight to the voters? So we worked very closely with, uh, with the police department and many of the ideas that are in this measure were the result of, a, uh, of many months of engagement that we had with actual line officers. Uh, the mayor went and visited many of the, the morning lineups at many of the uh, stations to really solicit feedback specifically from the officers on the street. Um, so we, we did uh, do that engagement. With regard to the commission itself, um, we, uh, we worked with 
some of our commissioners to sort of have a conversation about these uh, about these ideas, uh, but it's clear that um, the current composition of the commission uh, was not uh, amenable to many of these ideas. And how about you, Chief? You, you stated it was a national best practice to, to work through the department and the commission to promulgate policing operational policies. So what has changed? I know you said you can't take a position, but you're standing here speaking about a ballot measure rather than working through the commission and, and the department. I'm standing here speaking about impacts. Nothing has changed because whatever policies that come out, of, if this passes, will still have to go through the police commission. I mean, that's always true. And that's true in this case as well. Okay. All right. I mean, uh, here, here's one other question, I guess, for the, for the mayor's office. I'm not you since you're not driving this chief. Have, has there been a conversation with the Bar Association of San Francisco? I mean, they sent us a letter to our committee um, stating that they believe that this would be very vulnerable to legal challenge. Have you, have you spoken with them at all? Uh, we have not. No, the, the, the question was if we, whether we work with the Bar Association. And or at least spoke with them or heard no, their concerns. No, the mayor's office has not. Has not? Has not. And did they reach out to you in advance of? of we received the, the letter, that we my received? understanding, at the same time that you received okay, it. Okay, got yeah. it. But they had not contacted you or tried to work with you yes. in advance. Okay. Mm. I don't have anything else right now. Oh, sorry, I see Supervisor Walton. Supervisor Walton, Vice Chair Walton. Thank you, Chair Dorsey. Um, just a quick question, Chief, because I heard Supervisor Safai's question about what this does with the police commission, and you said it doesn't change the way policies are vetted through the police commission. Then why is this being proposed? What I said is if this passes, policies will still, pursuit policy will still have to be approved and adopted by the police commission. Whatever comes out of this would still have to be approved and adopted by the police commission. And why are we putting this on the ballot? If that's not a question for me, supervisor, I don't think. I just had to let the public know. Well, that, I, that, but you're asking me. That, that that's you not a said that nothing changes, but it's going to the ballot. Um, so I, I think one thing, you know, we have to, and, and this is not on you, Chief, uh, we have to let the voters, we can't mislead voters. We have to be honest about what kind of conversations we're having, particularly when we have them in public forums and public settings. And Chair Dorsey, when you quote cities like Walnut Creek and Palo Alto being more nimble, you should also make sure they don't share San Francisco values. They're definitely more right-wing and conservative areas. So we should be trying to compare apples to apples when we talk about data and when we compare San Francisco to other cities. We should not be using places that have been less amenable to people of color, that have been less amenable to our LGBTQ community, that have been less amenable to making sure that equity is a focus. So let's make sure that we compare apples to apples when providing data and information about responses in other cities. Otherwise, you're misleading our communities. Thank you, Vice Chair Walton. Um, and I think seeing nobody else on the roster, why don't we open this up to public comment?
Yes, members of the public who wish to speak on this item should line up to speak at this time. Each speaker will be allowed one minute to speak. There will be a soft chime when you have 30 seconds left and a louder chime when your time has expired. You may begin. Uh, good morning, Supervisors, Tess Wellborn. Um, public engagement is a good idea, uh, but this obstructs the Police Commission's authority. It allows all vehicle pursuits, which we know have led to injuries and deaths and property damage. And uh, setting a limit on administrative time is unreasonable. Where's the data? It appears to be a mayor's attempt to control and limit the, the police commission. Um, it, it massively expands police surveillance and prevents the Board of Supervisors from weighing in on any new te police technology until the technology's been out for a year. Haven't we learned anything from the cruise episode? <laughs> this is ridiculous. It also makes it more difficult for the police commission to limit the use of force or even hold officers accountable. This is not something that was crafted with the public and is an attempt to override the police commission. Please uh, so comment. Good morning, everyone. My name is Yoel Haile. I'm the director of the criminal justice program at the ACLU of Northern California. We are a coalition of 19 groups and advocates representing San Francisco's diverse communities opposing this measure sponsored by Mayor Breed. This measure asks the voters to weaken oversight, undermine accountability, and reduce the transparency of a police department that continues to struggle with racially disproportionate use of force, racist traffic enforcement, and several incidents of racism, homophobia, and scandals. This ballot measure seeks to capitalize on concerns about crime and exploit San Franciscans' discomfort with increasingly vis visible poverty and suffering. Like other myopic efforts, this measure doubles down on investing in policing as the first and primary tool to address real challenges and leaves little room for evidence-based solutions such as mental health care, substance use treatment, affordable housing. San Francisco voters should reject this measure because its proposed changes are misguided, ill-considered, and simply bad policy. We urge them... May begin. Good morning, Supervisors. I'm Julie Tron from the Bar Association of San Francisco. I'm a resident of District 8, and I'm here on behalf of the Bar Association. I can't possibly summarize our 16 pages in the one minute afforded to me, except to say that we are deeply troubled by this. It is rare for the Bar Association to weigh in as, as we have in the situation. We have very quickly, because this didn't come to our attention until more recently, dug in to provide you with specific facts, specific problems, specific conflicts with each of these provisions presented by the mayor. And honestly, as someone who has been a part of working groups for at least, I don't know, chief, I've worked with the chief for since 2000, since he was named. Um, we have great collaboration. We've made great progress. And it's, so, it's as though none of that has been recognized or celebrated in this ordinance. This, there are dangerous parts of this that we really need to stop and take a look at and consult with the Department of Justice before we proceed further. Thank you. 
Are there any additional speakers? Hi, Supervisors. <clears throat> My name's Matt Susk. I'm a District 3 resident. Uh, I was here just to listen, but I thought this was such an interesting conversation. So first thing, Supervisor Walton, um, totally agree with your point about pursuits. So dangerous. I mean, we read about one in Knob Hill just a couple weeks ago, right? Um, but I think one thing that's super interesting is the idea of deterrence, right? Our police force, I talk to police officers on a weekly basis. If we can pursue, if we can use drones, that's a deterrent. That can be a great thing. That means there may not be injuries, there may be less crime. So that's one thing that I think is super, super important. Uh, second is our allocation of capital, right? Like, super, uh, like, the, like the chief said, sometimes a helicopter comes in. I, I don't even want to know how expensive that is. But a drone, I mean, a two, three, four hundred dollar drone can help people. Let's use that for mental health. Let's use that for social work. Let's use that for substance abuse and not just use it to tack on more and more costs. Let's be more efficient like the chief said he wants to be. Thank you. Thank you. Are there any additional members of the public who would like to make public comment? There are no additional speakers. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. Public comment on item number five is now closed. And, um, you know, I would just, to, um, the, particularly the surveillance technology portion of this, um, I do think while it is important that we have uh, civil liberties guardrails on the use of surveillance technology, I will just say as a matter of principle, I do not believe that it is an appropriate topic for governance by uh, local government. Um, these are property crimes especially operate across municipal and county borders and I wanna make sure that um, it is as difficult to get away with crime in San Francisco as it is in South San Francisco. I wanna make sure that our residents and businesses and visitors are as well protected in San Francisco as they are in neighboring jurisdictions and I think we have a uh, surveillance technology policy that is uniquely onerous and difficult. I appreciate the portion of this measure that addresses that and gives us uh, as a city flexibility for the police department to move forward and to have time to um, still come back and meet the obligations of the 19B with um, the process of this being vetted and considered as a matter of policy. Um, obviously, reasonable minds will disagree on this. Um, the voters will have their say on Super Tuesday. And those are my thoughts. And uh, Supervisor Safai. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> I'll just say that I think it's a, I think it's, you know, I've enjoyed working with the chief over the last uh, six, seven years. I think he's been very thoughtful in terms of his engagement when it comes to really important policy issues. Um, I think it's been unfortunate that there hasn't been any engagement um, on this, you know, other than what Mr. Powers described. And, and I take them at their word that they did, that they did the work that they described. And that's fine. Um, it seems some of these things are contrary to what we have heard from the chief over the last few years in this body, pushing for reform and justice reform. I think you can have accountability and justice reform at the same time. I, I believe in, and one, you know, the use of technology can be extremely helpful in what we're trying to pursue in terms of holding people accountable. I think it needs to be vetted and, and we had a policy and, and I know back in 2022 we, we passed uh, together 
uh, the conversation about use of private cameras and, and there, there's a process that that went through and I think that that has been done in a, in a thoughtful way. I think some of this feels a bit rushed and unfortunately um, it's contrary to what I've heard from this chief over the last five or six years in terms of wanting to work in, in a more collaborative fashion. So that, that's the thing that, that feels a little contrary along with the progress that we've made with many of the recommendations from the Department of Justice. We have a quarterly hearing from um, advocates and those that are concerned with demographic da data when it comes to police encounters and particularly with regard to racial bias. I don't know how all that's impacted by this and what's being put forward. Um, and I know that that is still of great concern in this city and it should continue to be um, but that doesn't mean that that then gets conflated with we need to hold people that are constantly going into our stores and taking items and goods. And I think that we can do both at the same time. So I feel what I've heard about that once the voters weigh in, that there's still work that needs to be done uh, with, the with the police commission and the department. I'd like to learn a little bit more about that uh, because I'm not exactly sure um, the, other than, and I heard, other than with regard to drone policy, and I, and I get that. Um, so anyway, I, I reserve my judgment on this. Ultimately, um, again, it is, I think, very unusual for the Bar Association to weigh in. Uh, we got an extensive letter uh, going through this item uh, in a very um, intricate way, giving many, many different recommendations. So. I think that this will be an ongoing conversation and, and, and I look forward to learning more about what I've heard here today. But I am, I am very concerned uh, with some of the projection of this in opposition to or contradicting what the chief has talked to us about in this body, in this chamber over the last five or six years. Thank you. Great, thank you, Supervisor Safai, Vice Chair Walden. Thank you, Chair Dorsey. I just wanted to say in reference to safety, I feel 100% more safe in this amazing city than I do in Walnut Creek and Palo Alto. Vice Chair Walton. Um, okay, seeing no one else on the roster, I'd like to make a motion to consider this item heard and filed. Mr. Clerk, can we have a roll call on that motion? Yes, on that motion, Vice Chair Walton. Deputy City Attorney Pearson, just same question. This is in no way, shape, form, or fashion saying this is this vote, we support this? Deputy City Attorney Ann Pearson, that's right. This vote is just to confirm that the hearing was held and closed. Thank you. Aye. Walton, aye. Supervisor Safai. Safai, aye. Chair Dorsey. Aye. Dorsey, aye. The motion passes without objection. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. Then uh, the item is heard and filed. And Mr. Clerk, can we please call item number six? Item number six is a hearing to consider the proposed initiative ordinance submitted by the mayor to the voters for the March 5th, 2024 elections entitled Ordinance Mending the Administrative Code to Require Recipients of Aid Under the County Adult Assistance Program who are reasonable believed to be dependent on illegal drugs to be screened for substance abuse and to participate in appropriate substance abuse treatment where recommended by a professional evaluator provide that failure to comply with the drug screening, evaluation, and treatment requirement without good cause will render a recipient ineligible for assistance under CAAP program, allow CAAP recipients who are 
ineligible for assistance due to noncompliance with the screening, evaluation, and treatment requirements to receive a housing stipend or access to in-kind shelter for 30 days beyond the discontinuance of their aid with possible extensions as necessary to prevent eviction and establishing a special fund to support the costs of the substance abuse screening and treatment program using savings realized from implementation of the program. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. And uh, we are joined by Andres Powers, long time no see. Uh, Mr. Powers, the floor is yours again. The, the, the last time, I, I promise you, uh, for today at least. Um, so, this, uh, so this third item, um, sponsored by the mayor, again, Andres Power with the mayor's office, this third item, uh, uh, which would require uh, CAP beneficiaries to participate in appropriate substance use uh, disorder treatment uh, in order to maintain eligibility for benefits. Um, just as, a, as I did in the prior uh, presentation, um, I, uh, Trent Rohr, the director of the Human Services Agency, is here uh, and also can speak to some questions, but I'll give a very brief overview of the, of the measure uh, before that. So obviously these are statistics that we all are, are well aware of, but um, just for just to recap, the fentanyl epidemic uh, that we are sort of in the middle of here in San Francisco is like something we've never seen before. Last year we lost 647 uh, people uh, to this epidemic. So far this year we've lost 620, uh, putting us on track to, to far exceed last year's numbers by the end of the year. So this is a very sad and somber time. Uh, and it, uh, in our, from our perspective, it, uh, we need to be doing everything that we possibly can, looking at different things uh, to sort of help address this crisis from, from every possible angle. Um, just as a little bit of context, uh, just to make it clear that, that this measure, uh, as we talk about, really is about getting people connected to care. That is the goal. The goal is not to cut people off from their benefits. In fact, we want people to stay on their benefits. We also want people uh, to have a pathway to a better life, a healthier life, a more sustainable life for themselves and for the community. But just for context, um, you know, here on the on the behavioral health side of the house, um, we uh, in San Francisco we currently serve 25,000 people with mental health and addiction uh, issues on an annual basis here in the city. Um, since 2018, the the budget for behavioral health has increased by 85 percent and our, our budget specifically for substance use disorder in that same period of time has, has, has more than doubled. So, so we are leading here. I, I put this, this, this information here to show that San Francisco leads with services. We lead with options. We lead with compassion. But at the end of the day, people, we need to help people get better, and we need to uh, help people, and we need to hold people uh, accountable. Um, so as, as a quick recap, um, this measure simply requires those receiving CAP benefits. And so again, CAP benefits are, are single adults. So these are not families, these are not seniors, these are not veterans, these are single adults. Requires them uh, to participate in a program if they're, if they're deemed to, ha to have a substance use disorder. It does not require testing, as has been sort of incorrectly stated in the media, uh, and this only applies to legal drugs. So um, it does not apply to legal drugs. So it doesn't apply to alcohol and, and cannabis and such. Um, and just as an important note, this measure does not require sobriety in order to to receive funding. So you don't. This is not about. Uh, getting tested, and if you're, if you're tested clean, then you get benefits. That is not what this is about. All this measure does is, is requires people to participate in a program. Um, 
a quick summary of the, pro, of the CAP program so we have a sense of sort of the universe that we're talking about. There are about 5,200 people here in San Francisco that are currently enrolled. As I mentioned before, single adults, not families or seniors. About 20% of the population is homeless, um, and, and they receive up to $712 uh, in annual uh, benefits, uh, or sorry, in monthly benefits. Um, the, the law that we are using uh, to advance this provision is explicitly authorized under state law that, that governs general assistance. It allows local jurisdictions to condition benefits on reasonable participation, not sobriety, but reasonable participation in a, in a program. So just to encapsulate, when someone is, is coming in uh, to, to sign up for or to recertify for, for benefits, um, Today, as it stands today, they currently go through a screening process and there are current requirements that it can get imposed upon them. So it's not it just you come in the door and you, you get money. Um, right now, you're screened for employability. If you're employable, you're required under the, under the existing program uh, to participate in, in job training exercises. And, and there's an existing structure that requires uh, regular updates uh, to the human services agency and the, and the counselors on their staff to sort of certify that compliance. So that structure currently exists. And for people who are not employable, um, the requirement is that they, uh, that they apply for SSI with the federal government. And again, the city, through our counselors on the, on, at human services agency, uh, helps people for, through that process. So that, that I, I frame this here just to make it clear that there are current requirements uh, that apply to individuals, and if they don't meet those requirements, they're deemed uh, uh, ineligible. So this measure, on top of those uh, that, that existing screening for employability, um, adds a new, an additional screening for substance use disorder. So it's an initial conversation with, with, with a counselor at the Human Services Agency. Um, if, if that individual is deemed likely, just as a, and this again is not t testing, it's not, you know, as I've read in some paper, you know, blood tests or urine analysis, there's none of that. Um, if, you're, if, you are, if you're deemed to, to possibly have a substance use disorder, you, you would be referred under this measure uh, to a professional that will help work with you to figure out, to, to, to determine in fact whether you do have a substance use disorder and to help work with you to figure out exactly what is best for you. Um, and, and a clarifying point is that if the program is not available free of cost, so if there's not capacity, uh, if the, the program does not exist, then under state law and under this provision that we're implementing, the, your, your benefits are, 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 are not impacted. And so some examples just briefly of the type of, 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 of treatment services that, we, um, that, that could be uh, required, so it's anything from counseling, you know, going to see a therapist, group therapy. Many people just need medication. Um, so it's med it could be medication. It could be going into a detox program. And then for some people, it could be a, a, a residential setting of some sort where you're gone for a number of days or a couple of weeks uh, and more. So it really the idea, this is really a very wide range of of, of services, the measure is very clear not to stipulate what is right for, e for a particular individual. That's a decision, decision that's made specifically between uh, the professional and with, and with the client. And so just, just to recap here, the goal of this program at the end of the day is about saving lives. This is about keeping the people that are dying on our streets today alive with hope of, of, of having a more productive future. We see this as, an, as a way to provide an incentive 
uh, to encourage people into care. Sometimes people, uh, as we've heard, as the mayor has talked about in certain public remarks, people's, many people need encouragement, they need a nudge, and we see this as being a, a tool uh, to do that. Um, this is not about whether you know you participate and one day you don't show up and you're immediately kicked off. There's, there's, this is an active conversation that happens between uh, the city and with the and the um, and the participant, and we offer multiple opportunities to keep people uh, engaged. Um, willful non-participation is is the key word here. It's the willful non-participation um, that allows that would that would discontinue you from cap benefits but you could reapply right away. So this is not a, you know, once you're discontinued, it doesn't, it's not a ban, you're not put on a list. This is really about really encouraging people to participate and giving people as many options uh, to do that. So with that, uh, I, as I mentioned before, Trent Rohr, the Director of Human Service Agents is here to answer any specific questions on the program. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Powers, and uh, Supervisor Safai. Thank you, Mr. Powers. Um, I have a few questions. So I think part of the response <clears throat> is there's been a lot of confusion, and I appreciate you trying to clarify that today because there are some statements made by Mayor Breed that everyone was going to get drug tested and then everyone was going to be screened and then everyone needs to be in treatment. I mean, just even recently in an interview with the examiner, the words were everyone needs to be in a treatment program. So I guess what I, I want to start with is so it reads that the department shall require all adult recipients of aid under the general assistance pays COM and SSIP program to undergo screening for substance abuse when it's determined by the department that there's a reasonable suspicion that to believe that the individuals depend upon illegal drugs. Maybe that's not a question for you. Maybe that's a question for Mr. Rohr. How do you define reasonable suspicion. I mean, let's start there because that seems to be the, the key word. Thanks, Supervisor. <clears throat> Trent Rohr, Executive Director of Human Services. So the, the wording reasonable suspicion is actually from the state welfare institutions code. Got it. The, the language in the state law specifically says counties may, re <clears throat> may require substance abuse, sh uh, may require assessment should there be reasonable suspicion. So we pulled that right from the state law to be consistent with what we're legally allowed to do. So what does that mean? Tell me how um, it works in practice. So it, That's what I'm trying to figure out. So if I walk in and I, maybe, uh, you know, someone's on cannabis and their eyes are glossed, like how do you know? What's mm -hmm. the reasonable mm -hmm. suspicion? Yeah, so uh, the state of New York has this law. Uh, Los, uh, Los Angeles County also has this. So we'll, we'll learn from them. But, but currently the process, uh, prior to this, everyone on the County Adult Assistance Program gets assessed for employability. Right. right? That, yeah, Part that. of that employability assessment is actually a, a, a screen. single question about substance use and whether or not that's... Right. Okay. So some so people that would identify That would be one way, okay. potentially, to, to meet that reasonable suspicion <laughs> standard. Well, it's no longer a suspicion if they say they're addicted, right? Then it's they're confirming. That's Sure. So, like I said, we're learning from other... Um, states, New York in particular, LA, and also our colleagues at the Department of Public Health to develop what those screening instruments might be. <clears throat> Not only the initial screen to sort of determine the reasonable suspicion, but then the secondary assessment, which is a much more thorough um, conversation assessment survey screening of the client with a clinician to determine whether there's a substance use disorder that the, would then necessitate that individual being required to go to treatment. 
as a condition of their benefits. But this is a, this is a big departure. I mean, you've been the head of this department for 23 years or more, and this has never been done before in San Francisco. Correct. We have right? not availed ourselves of right? this we've state nev- option. We've never availed mm. ourselves of this part of the state law. Mm-hmm. So I know you're very thoughtful um, when it comes to this. I, I guess I still am a little confused how you're going to make it happen. What are you going to do? How is it actually going to be implemented? Because I think that's the thing that will really determine for folks. I get it. The headline is people already assume that people are coming in are, are drug addicted. But at the end of the day, what is, what is the department going to do to make sure that this is administered right. in a fair an equitable way because sure. it's based on suspicion at first. Sure. So, so just we're not assuming that everyone who's coming into the county adult assistance program office to apply for benefits is addicted to drugs. But okay. But that's but, how it's been talked about well, in the public. I, that's that's I, however I people it. talk about it is not my. I, I have nothing I, to do with I, that. I get I'm it. But that's, factually, that's, how the, that's how the mayor of San Francisco has talked about it. Everyone will be drug tested. Everyone will be in a treatment program. I'm hearing different things from everyone will be required to be in a treatment program who has a substance use disorder. Right. That's a disabling condition. That is correct. Right. Right. But that's not that does not mean that every bit of our five thousand three hundred people who are currently receiving county adult assistance is addicted to drugs. Of course. That's not what that means. Of course. Right. So I'm trying to get at the root of what suspicion. There are several uh, counties in California. Sure. There are several counties in California, supervisor, that have opted into this provision, LA being the biggest. <clears throat> There's probably 70,000 people receiving general relief uh, in Los Angeles. Um, they have this process. They, do, they use a survey instrument. They have a referral path. It's really not unlike what we do now. Mm-hmm. So right now, we assess for employability. If someone has a disabling condition that might make them eligible for federal disability, we require them to apply for federal SSI we link them with an SSI advocate. It might be a, a nonprofit legal provider or someone in-house to help them navigate that process. <clears throat> Similarly, if someone is employable, we might refer them to a job training program with a nonprofit provider. We, they might engage in work fair. They might go to city college. It's a referral path and a monitoring of compliance. <clears throat> it's really not that much different with this. They would be referred to either an in-house or a nonprofit uh, clinician to assess the degree of substance use disorder. And if it's determined that it is to the extent where it's a disabling condition and it is an addiction, they would be referred to a treatment that would be most appropriate given that kind of addiction. And what we do, just like we do with the other activities assigned to people on on the County Adult Assistance Program, we require monthly reports of uh, successful participation. Did someone show up for their work fair assignment three times uh, this week? Yes or no? If no, then we go down the path towards potential discontinuance. Let me same with you, job training and no, same no, with this treatment initiative. I'm sorry. Let me just ask it a different way. <clears throat> Is the, the state law and the definition of reasonable suspicion broad enough that if you come in for your initial screening and I am a HSA worker and you've come in, and I suspect because of my training, and I say I believe this person is addicted to drugs. Is that enough to that's, meet the threshold for reasonable that's suspicion? Not what it says. It's, no, I'm it's, asking. I'm yeah. asking. So it's reasonable suspicion. So it's not person presents and and the HSA employee says you're addicted, you go. It's there is a given check a box, check a box, check a box. I think that this, this person needs further assessment okay. by a professional clinician to determine 
whether or not um, the individual has a substance use disorder. So they so refer it's a, it's a them two to step they, process. They refer initial, them to the clinician. Correct. And then the clinician is going to make the determination. But, but the initial reasonable suspicion is the HSA worker. That's, correct. Yes. And, just, and, just like and, we have a reasonable and, suspicion that someone might be disabled. I, someone might say, hey, I'm not disabled. I can work. We say, well, we're going to refer you over here. You might have uh, you know, issues with, with mental illness, and we're going to have you professionally assessed. Let me ask another question then. Mm -hmm. Is there a plan within HSA to have internal training for your staff? Yeah, so what we need to figure out, uh, Supervisor, is what we, we currently have physicians on, on staff. We have mm -hmm. um, psychiatrists, we have nurse practitioners, et cetera. Whether they could be trained internally whether we hire a new classification of worker, someone who is a, a professional in the field, or whether we contract with nonprofit treatment providers to provide that clinical assessment, or whether we Not work- step two, or, I'm or whether, step one. Yeah, uh -huh. or, or whether we work with Department of Public Health as well to provide that clinical. Yes, we will certainly have to train staff <clears throat> on how reasonable suspicion is- So this might require proper. additional expenditures within your department to administer this program? I heard you say you might require new staff, you might require new training. Yeah, well, every, every employee who works in the county health assistance program is trained on the, on the CAP policies and procedures, and so we would just add an element to training that already exists. I, the reason I ask is because we, uh, we had just last week um, at the board meeting, there were public employee workers that are inspectors, and it is part of their job description to do inspection However, now they're being asked to be involved in inspection for illegal vending. It falls under the rubric of what they're doing, but it's an additional um, requirement for some of those, at, at least from their perspective. We were hearing that for the first time. And so I just, I'm thinking about implementation now. You're taking it to the voters. You're asking for this um, authorization. Um, it seems as though, if it's already state law and it's something that do you need to go to the voters for that if it's already state law? The state law is, the city attorney can opine, but the state law allows counties to. It says may, right? Counties have the, have the option to institute this. The, the state welfare institution code lists a lot of things that counties can opt into. Mm -hmm. Counties can opt to time limit public assistance, for example, to three months out of 12. Counties can establish their own residency requirements, how those up are met. So, so there's a lot of options. Right. And so... In order no, to partake, or in order to take one of those options, one or many, um, yes, it's felt we need a local ordinance change. Correct. Uh, can I, through the chair, Madam City Attorney, um, I understand that this is state law and it allows, it says counties may. Is it necessary to go to the voters if it's already in state law and says they may avail themselves of this aspect of, of county assistance? Deputy City Attorney Ann Pearson. I don't believe it's required to go to the voters. The board and the mayor could pass legislation to amend the cap ordinance to include this requirement. This ordinance is just being put on the ballot as a But measure. do you have to have an ordinance? The county has to take some steps to incorporate this option as part of its program. But could could program that be done administratively? I mean, could, could HSA, if they're already availing themselves of all these requirements, could they say that we are promulgating a new administrative procedure, we're going to access this part of state law. Do they need an ordinance for that? I believe they do need an ordinance for that. The CAP program is regulated now by an ordinance because it's the Board of Supervisors that makes the sort of fundamental policy choices about the program. 
the department has the authority to um, interpret those or flush them out a little bit by regulations, but this is a fundamental policy choice whether to Im into, uh, implement this, this option that the state law provides. Okay, thanks for that clarity. And, and then supervisor, just to, to speak to that specifically, so, so, so that, is, that was the advice that we received too, that basically an ordinance would be required to, to implement the policy. I think what the question that you were getting at was sort of the implementation details and sort of how it would specifically be administered by, by staff. The, the measure on purpose has a delayed implementation date, so it purposely is, uh, does not take effect until January of 2025. To, should, should the voters support this, it gives us nine months not only to plan for it to the extent that there's a budgetary impact mm -hmm. in the budget uh, year, but also to make sure that staff and, and our procedures are, are, are well established and, and people are trained up for it. Okay, thank you. I, I, I guess I'm still, and I appreciate it. The one thing that I heard was, you know, check a box if someone self-identifies. Sounds like there's going to be some initial assessment of reasonable suspicion based from your staff and then a referral to uh, clinically trained professionals to make a final uh, determination. Sounds like that is going to require training of your staff. Sounds like it's going to require potentially new staff in collaboration with the Department of Public Health. And sounds like it could, there could be a price tag associated with this uh, proposal. So through the, through the chair to the controller's office, has there been an analysis uh, done on what the cost to the overall budget might be? Uh, thank you, Supervisor. Janice Levy, Office of the Controller. As noted in the letter, um, there are potential administrative costs associated with the implementation of this. As we've heard from the executive director of the Human Services Agency, there's a lot of outstanding questions as to what that will look like. And we will continue to update our letter as more information becomes available. Mm, so not no information yet, because there's not enough information. It's really hard to make a determination. There's different costs associated with contracting out this staff with um, hiring new staff as well. Right. But it sounds like I think there's an agreement that there's going to be costs associated with this program and its implementation. The reason I bring that up is because we're having this ongoing conversation in this body and at the Budget Committee. Um, as we face a half a billion in rising uh, budget deficit, I think it might rise to seven or eight hundred million. Um, and that's something that's going to be with us over the next couple of years. It's something to consider as we're approaching these new programs and how, uh, what choices are going to be made within. I mean, you could also argue that there could be cost savings in other areas as well, and I think that's what the controller's office will analyze. I'm just curious. I'm still stuck on the reasonable suspicion, the training of staff, and how it's going to be implemented. Um, but <coughs> I see Supervisor Walton on there. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Supervisor Safai. Vice Chair Walton. Thank you, Chair Dorsey. Uh, Director Rohr, just a quick question, because you alluded to New York and L.A., and I, I think um, Supervisor Safai was getting to this, but did they uh, institute these policies via ordinance, uh, going to the ballot, or how, how did they come about? I, I know that it's a New York state law, so uh, New York... Uh, requires that their structure of how they administer human services program is different from the way we do <clears throat> in that they're state administered, not county. So they, st they changed state law to do that. Um, Los Angeles County has had this, I believe, since 1998. Um, and I, I don't recall how, how they 
Institute. I, I do know that our, we've made a lot of changes to the GA program over the last two decades, one of which was establishing the CAP program itself and related requirements, and that all went through the ordinance process through deliberations at the board to, to change the local, the local ordinance that governs CAP. Thank you. And so it's I, consistent with that. I do got to say, I think comparing LA and New York to San Francisco is a much better comparison than Walnut Creek and Palo Alto. Um, but, you know, I, I do just want to say this on record. Maintaining cash aid for residents in need is crucial in addressing the complex issues they face. Removing financial support could exacerbate crime and overlook the deep-rooted trauma contributing to substance abuse. Rather than solely focusing on substance abuse treatment, a comprehensive approach should prioritize mental health services. Without adequate mental health support, addressing the root causes becomes challenging, potentially leading to a cycle of relapse and program reentry. History so shows that cutting funding for mental health services in San Francisco resulted in an increase in substance abuse. Investing in mental health facilities is essential for stabilization and functional recovery, forming the foundation for effective substance abuse treatment. A strategic emphasis on mental health initiatives ensures a more holistic and sustainable solution to the drug epidemic. We have never fully implemented our mental health SF strategies. We should first work towards this before we penalize our most vulnerable residents. We have a broken medical system, and I'm concerned that if we do not address mental health services, we won't be addressing the root causes of the individual's need that end up turning to substance abuse. What does this mean for San Francisco if we only work on substance abuse treatment and the program does not provide culturally competent mental health services? And do we have enough providers that will be able to meet this demand? Drug testing people receiving general assistance can be seen as irresponsible for several reasons. Firstly, it assumes a presumption of guilt, treating all recipients as a potential drug user without evidence. This approach can perpetuate stereotypes and stigmatize those in need, discouraging them from seeking assistance. Examining the historical context of the war on drugs further emphasizes the inefficiency and inefficacy of punitive measures. The war on drugs, which gained momentum in the 70s, focused heavily on criminalization and punishment. Despite decades of aggressive policies, it failed to significantly reduce drug use or address the root causes of substance abuse. Instead, it contributed to the mass incarceration of thousands of nonviolent offenders, disproportionately affecting marginalized communities. A more comprehensive and compassionate approach, such as investing in our own mental health SF, should and would be a better solution. This is another attack on our poor San Francisco residents. We are going to create more crime by taking cash aid away from individuals or discouraging them to seek support and health. This is a violation of everyone's basic rights to privacy. This would mean that our investment first should be in mental health services 
followed after an extensive screening for substance abuse screening. If we band-aid our residents by mandating a program, what will happen upon completion? Do they just come back out and continue to go in and out of these programs, much like the San Francisco general mental health beds? I agree that we need to address the drug crisis, but first, let's support our mental health initiative and get our residents the help that they need. Right-wing policies of attacking the poor have not led to less drugs or less drug use on our streets and our communities. Thank you, Chair Dorsey. Thank you, Vice Chair Walter. I just, I just want to make. Do you have some stuff you want to say? Yeah. Okay. I just want to, I just want to end with. I, I appreciate um, Supervisor Walton's comments. Um, the, the thing that, the thing that uh, I still walk away with a number of questions. Um, it, we talked a little bit about it from the controller's report that it could increase uh, cap administrative costs. It could increase uh, costs to the city, um, and I'm very concerned about the actual uh, lack of or the ability to get enough people into treatment because we don't have that available treatment right now, and the increased cost to provide housing to support you know, discontinued uh, CAP recipients. It's good to hear that there's a, a pathway for them to get back on um, if they choose not to participate uh, because we certainly don't want to create have unintended consequences of increasing the number of people that are unhoused. Um, but there's definitely, there's definitely going to be costs associated with this. And then the idea of clearly defining what reasonable suspicion means and how that will be administered, I, I still walk away with some questions on that. I do appreciate Director uh, Rohr explaining more and that there's gonna be some more research done looking at how other counties have administered this. But it sounds like there's some additional work to be done um, as we think about this if it is to be passed by the voters. I, I believe that we, we need to expand the number and the amount of treatment in the city. There's a lot of people suffering with addiction and there is an overlap with this audience, people on general assistance and those that need uh, uh, treatment. And I think that should be a significant focus of what we're thinking about as we approach this um, because there's an ongoing need uh, for expanded treatment in our city. So I'll just end with that. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Supervisor <coughs> Safai. And I would just, uh, before we open it up to public comment, just um, I appreciate that of the, the measures we are considering today, and I think for the upcoming election, the one that I think has the most potential to save lives is this one. And I think just given the backdrop of a record-shattering crisis in drug overdose deaths, the more that we can do to support people and incentivize people to seek recovery, to, to be honest about what it is. And one th other thing um, that I appreciate about this approach is recognizing that there's, there's a multitude of things that constitute what, what treatment and recovery may be. Um, it can be mutual help programs, it could be um, in, in outpatient, it could be inpatient. I think there's a lot of things that we can do. Um, the National Institute on Drug Abuse uh, authored in 2018, Principles of Drug Addiction Treatment, a research-based guide. And in that, there is a principle in there that treatment does not need to be voluntary to be effective. And the, the language that um, NIDA said in there was that 
Sanctions or enticements from family employment settings and or the criminal justice system can significantly increase treatment entry, retention rates, and the ultimate success of drug treatment interventions. And beyond that, I've spoken with uh, policy experts. Uh, Professor Keith Humphreys at Stanford, I think, is a good example. Dr. Humphreys um, talked to me about, you know, even when we measure what, would we, would, what we would call a voluntary uh, intervention in a treatment program, if you scratch beneath the surface, it's voluntary, but, uh, you know, I'm going to lose my career, my job, my kids, my wife. My, any number of factors are May, it may appear to be voluntary, but often what's happening is there are real-life consequences that um, those of us in recovery would recognize as hitting bottom or, or being in a situation where there is an, an intervention that can be made. And what we, when we talk about these kinds of interventions, given the era of fentanyl, we're talking about something that I think is uh, life-saving in ways that it has not been in decades past. So... Uh, with that, seeing no one else on the roster, Mr. Clerk, can we open this up to public comment? Yes, members of the public who wish to speak on this item should line up to speak at this time. Each speaker will be allowed one minute. There will be a soft chime when you have 30 seconds left and a louder chime when your time has expired. Uh, you can approach the podium. Good afternoon, Supervisors, Tess Wellborn. I hope you will join me in congratulating the mayor on a, uh, creating a program that will send more people to the streets. They will lose their housing. And this new program that we can congratulate the mayor for will also be funded by sending those people to the streets. That is the, the statement in the, in the legislation that it will be funded by people who are kicked out of the program. Now, remember, we have no data here presented that the, uh, how many people OD'd when they were single adults on essentially welfare. We have no information about that, but we do see it's another aspect of the war on drugs and the war on poor people. I noticed that it did leave out uh, seniors and families. I guess they don't use drugs. Thank you. Are there any additional members of the public for public comment? There does not appear to be any additional speakers. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. And then public comment on item number six is now closed. And um, I'd like to make a motion to consider this item heard and filed. And just for everyone's edification, that does not mean support or opposition to the measure. It is just a, we are hearing it and um, filing it. Mr. Clerk, yes, on that motion, Vice Chair Walton. Aye. Walton, aye. Supervisor Safai. Safai, aye. Chair Dorsey. Aye. Mercy aye, the motion passes without objection. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. Then item six is heard and filed, the initiative ordinance, uh, administrative code, substance use abuse screening. Um, Mr. Clerk, can we please call the next item? Yes. Item number seven is a hearing considered the proposed initiative ordinance submitted by four or more supervisors to the voters for the March 5th, 2024 election, entitled ordinance amending the administrative code to require the chief of police to adopt a foot and bike patrol strategy for the police department. Great, thank you, Mr. Clerk. Supervisor Safai is the main sponsor of this item. Supervisor Safai, the floor is yours. Uh, Mr. Chair, I'd just like to continue this for one week. Okay. Um, or to the next, I, I don't think we have one next week. I believe we have, we have uh, deadlines to submit this to the Department of Elections. Let me uh, find no, out No, th exactly. this is just an ordinance petition. It's not a charter amendment. 
there's still, I think there's still time. I, I understand that, yeah. That's what I conferred with city attorney. Uh, it is only a hearing on, on our behalf, but uh, we have a deadline to submit a notice of hearing to the oh, Department okay. of Corrections. Oh, okay, we can just have the hearing and file it, that's fine. We can just quickly okay. call it, hear it, and file it, that's fine. Okay. Do you I'm sorry, I didn't realize it was the actual hearing. I, I apologize, okay. Mr. Clerk. Okay, do, do you want to, um, anything you'd like to say about it? No, we okay. can just file it. Okay, um, I'm sure you open this up to public comment. Yes, members of the public who wish to speak on this item should line up to speak at this time. Each speaker will be allowed one minute. There will be a soft chime when you have 30 seconds left and a louder chime when you, your time has expired. There does not appear to be any public speakers at this for Thank this you, Mr. item. Clerk, public comment on item number seven is now closed. And I would like to uh, make a motion to consider this uh, hearing heard and filed. Yes, on that motion. Vice Chair Walton. Aye. Walton, aye. Supervisor Safai. Aye. Safai, aye. Chair Dorsey. Aye. Dorsey, aye. The motion passes without objection. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. Item number seven is heard and filed. Can we please hear item number, can you please call item number eight? Item number eight is a charter amendment, first draft, to amend the charter of the city county of San Francisco to establish within the charter of the Department of Emergency Management position of the director of the department and the director's qualification and appointing authority at the elections to be held on March 5th, 2024. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. Uh, Supervisor Safai is the main sponsor of this item as well. Supervisor Safai, yes. floor is yours. I'd like to uh, amend the date only uh, to November 5th, 2024, and then just continue this item to the call of the chair. So I'll make a motion to amend the date okay. to November 5th, 2024. Okay, we have a motion to amend the date to the November election of 2024. And uh, seeing no one on the roster, Mr. Clerk, can we open this up to public comment? Yes, on that motion, members, oh, excuse me. Uh, members of the public who wish to speak on this item should line up to speak at this time. Each speaker will be allowed one minute. Those, there will be a soft chime when you have 30 seconds left and a, a louder chime when your time has expired. There does not appear to be any public commenters for this matter. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. Public comment on item number eight is closed. And um, I think this will give us, I, I will say, I, I, um, there were a couple of concerns that I had had about it, but I think that, that knowing that we have time to work on this um, gives us the opportunity to do that. So I will uh, reserve judgment on that. And why don't, I, why don't we make a motion to, um, on the, why don't we make a motion to, uh, on, the, on the motion that's on the floor. Yeah, as over, uh, continue the item to the call of the chair as amended. Yes, on the motion to amend uh, to the oh, November sorry. to the November fifth, two thousand twenty-four election, and to continue the matter as amended to the call of the chair. Vice Chair Walton. Aye. Walton. Aye. Supervisor Safai. Aye. Safai. Aye. Chair Dorsey. Aye. Dorsey. Aye. The motion passes without objection. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. Do we have any further business? That completes the agenda for today. Great. Thank you all. We are adjourned.